starts and says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lavaciousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, sedations, heresies, envying, murders, drunkenness, revilings, and such like, of which I tell you before, as I have also told you in the past, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections of and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. So, the whole entire, I mean, that is basically the summary of Paul's entire ministry is to walk in the Spirit. He's constantly in a state of, whether he's talking to Timothy or talking to whoever, he's constantly bringing up the fact that you need to be constantly, it's a constant struggle. Every day you have to be constantly rededicating yourself to it. And like for Paul, in his position, he went from a very glorious position, having a lot of power and prestige. And I mean, everybody looked up to him. He was a Pharisee, so the Jews looked up to him. He was of Greek lineage, and he spoke Greek fluently, so the Greeks listened to him. He was a Roman citizen at the same time, so the Romans would put, I mean, they gave him a bill where he could do whatever he wanted. He could go anywhere he wanted and, and with, with complete immunity. So he went from a position of absolute authority and just being exalted by everybody and being applauded for the things that he did to being one of the most reviled people in, in the Roman Empire. And not just that, but he also was not just reviled, but I mean, he had all kinds of slander spoken about him. It was constant. The whole, every time he comes to Jerusalem to speak with the other apostles, or when he talks to Peter, it's always about somebody saying something about him. It's always about, well, Paul's speaking something against this. Paul's, they're constantly bringing things up. And so for him, I'm sure it was every day. There are times he just wants to explode. He just wants to be angry about this. And he has to rededicate himself every day to this. And the thing is, is he talks about how difficult it is for him not to boast and be glory and be, you know, bring glory on himself because he does have, of all the apostles, he pretty much did the most. He went everywhere. He set up endless churches. He put endless numbers of people in position of power to run the churches. He wrote, now John wrote the most words in the Bible in the New Testament, but he wrote the most books in the New Testament, you know, 12 or 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. 
I mean, he was, his writings are prolific. There's all kinds of writings that he wrote that didn't make it into the New Testament. He wrote and wrote. And all the other apostles would, I mean, they would all go back to him. If somebody had a problem, they'd say, well, what did Paul say? They would, they respected his opinion. So he had every right to bring stuff up, be like, well, I'm one of the most respected people. Oh, I have all the, but it was a constant struggle to make sure he didn't do that. He doesn't call that out. So for him, he talks about the war within. If you notice, he talks about how that, you know, it says that you must walk in the lust of 17. It says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So, you know, it's saying that one actually is against the other. One tries to push the other out. But not just that, they're contrary to one another, meaning you can't have both at the same time. If you're, at the moment you're, you're allowing your flesh to rule anything, you cannot be in the spirit. But if you're following the spirit, then you are not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. That's just the way it works. They are contrary items that you cannot at one time at work. And so we see that, you know, Paul loves his, Paul loves to do his, uh, his lists. He, he goes, he's all the time. <laughs> I see Paul as being like, he's very conversational. He has these, these, he writes these things, very conversational. But Paul just like, I, I use the term meandering. He kind of just meanders around and goes from topic to topic and sort of talks about things. And, and it's funny because he was so smart and he knew so much that he just says things like everybody will know what he's talking about. But as Peter said, things Paul says are hard to understand sometimes. But one of the things Paul, Paul uh, does is he gives a really detailed list. Usually when he's giving lists, he lists six, seven, eight things randomly. Just and he just some will have this this eight, and some will have another set, and they're not always the same. But in this one, he gives a really detailed account. I mean, he goes through a lot of the concepts of what he's talking about, and the reason why he's going through is because of that whole concept of the totality. It's all the stuff he's saying that everything that the reason. Why? Because if you notice in here, he puts in there, not just, you know, it works adultery, which adultery, fornication, which fornication in the old in the Bible, the way it's used, and the way it was used in 1611, and fornication is referring to ritual, sexual, whatever. So, like, they do, like, sex magic and various occult practices. So fornication refers to that. We've kind of, you'll hear people say all the time, oh, it means this, or that. They're usually changing it, or they're taking what was probably the meaning in the 1900s or something, yeah. 1910, and pushing it back. But at the time, it actually meant more, uh, there was a religious aspect to the, to the sex. And then he goes in, you know, uncleanness. Like that's just sleeping around. That's rather than adultery, that's just sleeping with several people. Vivaciousness, that's anything having to do with the flesh being openly lewd and stuff like that you know and then you got idolatry which basically it's weird because if you want to sum up most sins the vast majority of sins are idolatry because you're putting yourself in the place of god you're making yourself more important than god 
And anytime you're, anything is more important to you than God, that's an idol. It's idolatry. So idolatry kind of sums it up. But he's probably, because these are Galatians, this is Greek, he's probably specifically referring to the worship of items themselves. But then he goes right in, witchcraft. So he's talking specifically about incantations. And witchcraft kind of encapsulates a whole pro a meaning of pharmaceuticals and stuff like that, taking things to enhance your mind and drugs and stuff. So witchcraft is referring to all kinds of, but it's talking about especially, you know, chemical altering of your brain. But then he gets more into everyday things. Hatred. Variance. Meaning he's now he's getting into, you know, emulation and wrath and strife and temptation. He's getting into things that you just, you do in your everyday life. People get upset and they hold grudges and, you know, people get angry. And usually when you hold a grudge, you get angry, you get wrathful, you know, that you got all these different things just, and when you get angry, when you get wrathful, it's, it's almost like you're leading down a, a, a line here. One causes the other, Emulation, wrath, wrath causes strife, you're causing strife amongst you know, and so you keep going with this. Now, the weird thing is heresies is an odd word because a heresy, the term heresy just means to make a decision. That's what the word in and of itself means. It basically means you're making a decision. And because the point being is that, let's say there's something that's a little fuzzy. There's a little fuzziness. Let's, let's say baptism. We can all pretty much, just from the word baptism, surmise that it means dunking underwater. Because baptismo in Greek means to submerge in water. It's the word. You, the actual the first ever use of baptismo is in a cooking recipe for pickles. They say you baptisma the pickle. That you, so submerge it in salt water. So it's submersion. The word itself means submersion. However, people acknowledge that when Christ was being baptized, he was actually following the priestly rituals of what he was doing so that he could present himself not just as a rabbi, but as a high priest. So the thing is, if you go back to Leviticus, they actually sprinkle the high priest. They would take and he would bend down and put his face down like him water and they would take the water over the back of his head so one could argue Christ himself might have instructed John to sprinkle him so here's where you get thing where basically you have a decision to make you can choose what you want are you going everybody says well the words baptism which means submerge so we're gonna go with submerge that's fine. That's what the majority of the view is. But then somebody does a heresy, which is they choose to, to decide to, to agree with the other way. and say, well, sprinkling's good enough. So a heresy is just simply choosing to be contrary to what is accepted. That's the reason why Peter uses the term a damnable heresy. Because there, most heresies are just people making change. They just deciding, oh, I don't like, again, I don't like baptism. I don't like the way we do the 
Lord's Supper or something. They'll change some little aspect of it. You know, they want it to be very systematic. They want to have a doxology and all these the candles. Those are just, those are heresies, but they're just deciding little aspects. However, you have damnable heresies, which are deciding that Christ wasn't really divine. Deciding that Christ never really died, or that he never really survived, you know, risen. Those are heresies that if you believe that, you're damning yourself by it. Because that means you're not believing God, you're not believing Christ. So, the word heresy, again, it's kind of loaded. But you see that Paul goes through here, and he's making, you know, all kinds of applications. Basically, every, the totality of us, what we are as people, is essentially contrary to God and his nature. We are not God. We are less than. So by the very def definition, God is holy and righteous, and anything not him is not. And so we are not. So, therefore, we can only be saved by grace. That's it. There's nothing we can do. And that's the, again, that's the reason why you get this totality of sins that, that, that Paul is He's really just putting everything out there. That basically everything you can do <laughs> is going to be sinful in some way. And it's that way, really. I've actually I've talked to people who will say things like, oh, I've, I wash the dishes and I, you know, do the clothes, and I've never asked for a thank you from my family ever. They've never given me a thank you, but I've never asked for it. And I told them, I said, if you truly never, because they're saying that you know, they're unconditional love, if you truly didn't care about the thank you, truly, and you truly were unconditional, no conditions attached, you wouldn't even have realized that they never said thank you. It's just the way it is. Wouldn't even thought about it. Wouldn't have crossed your mind. But the fact that you know that they've never said thank you means that there's a little part of you that would like a thank you. And that's not wrong to say to somebody because I think somebody should say thank you. But it is self-deceiving to believe that you've ne you're, you do all these things and you never expect it. Oh, yeah. Everybody likes to be appreciated. <laughs> but the thing is, is, if you were truly doing it sacrificially, nothing of me, all about the other person, then you wouldn't think about it. But you can't. We're human. We're human. We fail at doing things. We're just not. We can't do it. God came down to earth and could have at any time stopped the crucifixion. Yeah. Think about that. At any moment, he could have stopped it. At any moment, he could have taken himself down off the cross. At any moment, and yet he chose not to. He was in complete control. He could have at any moment stopped it, but he didn't. That's true sacrificial love. That's truly being you know, completely for the other people and not thinking about yourself. Because he could have stopped it, but he didn't. And we can never get there. We just can't. So, what we see is, I'm going to jump to First Timothy 1 real quick, just to sort of have a... To explain, though, that while Paul is referring to this, the fact that basically he's making this point that, you know, we need to walk by the Spirit, we need the flesh and the Spirit are against each other, he's, he always makes the point that 
the law has good properties. It's not that there's anything wrong necessarily with the law or even following. It's that you can't put it in place of grace. Because again, the second you put something in the place of God, God said, I'm it, I'm all you need. The second you put something else in the place of that, then you've got a problem. Because you're actually making an idol out of the law. So you need to believe in Christ, crucified, dead, resurrected. But the law is not a bad thing. So in 1 Timothy 1, and we're going to just read, it says, uh, we're going to start in 6, just to, um, no, we'll start in 7. It says, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither that they say nor whereof they affirm. So they're saying, and this is he's talking about the other thing, that some people want to be teachers and stuff, but they're not willing to really put themselves under the type of self-introspection and the type of reading and studying it takes. Then 8 says, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. But, and it says, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for the sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stillers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So, he's saying... The thing is with the law, is the law isn't about, one, about the righteousness. It isn't about being saved. The only use the law truly has is to point out our shortcomings. That's the, that's the use. It, it wasn't made to make you right with God. It wasn't made because now that you're right with God, you have to follow it. But when you're sinful, when you're any of these things, the law shows you where you're an heir, and therefore it's, and it points to God and says, because you're, you can't follow it right perfectly, now you need God. So the law is not made for the righteous. It's made for sinful people. It's made just to point us to. And again, Paul used the term, and it's, I love the thing. He says that you know, basically when he was young, he didn't know. He was ignorant of, of sin. and He just lived. And then when he heard about the law, he says, I died. I was dead. Because he's saying all of a sudden the law showed to him who he truly was. And as soon as he became aware of his deadness, he realized, okay, you know, he, he died. He was alive in his ignorance. As soon as he became aware of it, he died. Which is a real thing. Some people, when they experience... God, when they experience a revelatory moment and it really hits you and you really become aware of yourself, but you become aware more so of the goodness of God, sometimes it's a dark place. I actually use an a, a analogy with people that imagine you're in a completely dark room and a little light comes on over top of you and you can see a circle about six feet around you. And from inside that circle... You go, man, God is really close to me. I feel close to God now, now that I have light in my life. 
Then all of a sudden what happens is, because that light is illuminating just you. It's showing you who you are. And you're feeling good about it. But then all of a sudden as you grow and you expand, you slowly but surely get to the point where you see the, it expands and you look around and you go, well, I thought God was just like just outside of arm range, arm's reach. But it, now the, the, the circle is 20 feet wide. And he's still not, I can't see him yet, but he's still there. He's just, just over the line. He's close. And it keeps going. But then all of a sudden, there is a moment where, and for some people it's different, but for people who are really feelers, they feel a lot, the lights come on totally. And you, you see that, you know what? God is with us. But God is so much not like us that he's way over there. And you see just how far it is between us and God. And it becomes like a weight. You become like depressed over it. There's actually a thing that's called the dark night of the soul, which is it's when you realize just how far you are from God. Sometimes it has the reverse effect. It doesn't make you want to be more holy. It actually makes you more down, more depressed because you realize not necessarily how great God is, but how far away from him you really are. <laughs> and, and it's like, it almost makes you do the thing like, well, if there's no way I can even come close to him, why even try? It's essentially what you get you. It's like a, you give up. You want to give up because it's like, it, you know, it's the whole concept of how the, I can't remember which one that is, had to push the boulder up the hill, up the mountain. And every time he'd get it almost to the top, it'd roll back down and he'd have to go back and roll it up. And every time, it's that. It's like, if you know you're never going to win, to, to, to finish, so after some point, you're going to get to the point where you go, well, why even try? Yeah. Why try? <laughs> and that's what Paul dealt with. Paul saw his sins very clearly. And so he understood the war within. And so basically for Paul, he's saying the reason why you can't glory, the reason why... You can't, you know, but not to get depressed. The reason why you compete and you finish. Because in Paul, when Paul's talking to Timothy, he keeps talking about running the race, finishing strong, keep going. Because when you're so acutely aware, sometimes it feels like you're so far away from God, you want to just give up. And Paul's saying, just keep going. It's worth it on the other side. On the other side of eternity, it's worth it. Just here, it may not feel like it. But, so he's basically trying to stave off. He's, it's, this, it's this line where you're trying to make people aware of their sinfulness, but not damage them. You know, you don't want to damage somebody. You always want to, again, that's why some preachers, I really get on them because all they want to do is, you're sinful, you're going to hell, God hates these, and God. And it's like, dude, you're, you could very easily be damaging people by doing that. As, as, as rough as Christ was towards the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all them, he was pretty gentle to the people who were truly lowly. When he was with tax collectors and prostitutes, and he was really nice to them. <laughs> he really was. He was pretty nice. He really did not, you know, he could have lit into them, you know. He could have really lit into them about their sins. He rarely mentioned them. He rarely mentioned the sins because what Christ was doing was simply being an example. By the way he lived, people would see him, and there's even there's writings from about that time of some of the women that followed him 
that were written, and they would talk, written by men that they, they knew or married or whatever. And they would talk about how that Christ sat with them and spoke with them as if they were equals. He didn't treat them as though they were second class. He didn't treat them as though they were just sex objects. He didn't, they, he spoke to them as though they had worth. And that was what was different about him. And so it made the women that he talked to want to be different, but it made the men say, well, what's different about him that all these people follow him, that they like him, that they, you know, all these things. And, and it was truly because of the way he, he, he spoke with kindness. He spoke the truth. Sometimes it's a hard truth, but he tried not to damage them. So in Galatians, while Paul's being very straightforward, he at the same time is trying not to damage these people. <laughs> He's trying not to hurt them. He just wants to correct them. So in 6, he gets a lot softer. And again, this actually is a 6 chapter is perfect for like dealing with people within a church because it, it just goes perfectly. And it says, starting in the first verse, it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. So, there's another one of these points where it, the end kind of makes it difficult from the beginning, because he's saying that, and he says that, you know, if someone's overtaken in a fault, people who are spiritual, go ahead and restore them. Use a spirit and a spirit of meekness, not condemnation, not anger. Restore the person. Considering thyself. So think about yourself, lest you be tempted. And he's talking about tempted to think of yourself more highly than you should. A lot of times when you see someone in a fault and you go to bring it up, you just naturally want to kind of be like, well, you're doing this, and I'm not doing that. And that's, that's not the way to consider yourself. Consider that there is something you struggle with. And therefore, try not to be haughty. Try not to be, you know, self-proud. I mean, he says in here, it's interesting, because it says, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear, as in take it upon yourself. Sometimes people just need a hand, you know, take it upon, you know, go beside, hey, what are you doing? What's going on? What can I help you with? Maybe the person just needs to talk it out. But it says, for if a man think of himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But then he says, let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. And the thing is, and so, basically, and in this case, he's not talking about the person who's an heir, he's talking about the people who are coming, who are helping. That, you know, just, he's saying, if you, if you think of yourself as a good person, think of yourself as a spiritual person, do something. Do it. You know, be helpful. And in this, you'll have rejoicing in yourself. You don't rejoice outwardly and boast to other people, but inwardly you can feel good knowing you did the right thing. But so that way, you know, that way you're not relying on other people for your happiness. 
You're not relying on other people for, and both two ways. You can be relying on other people to be offer your happiness and that they give you happiness, whether it's because you're helping them and you get happiness by helping them, or that maybe that you feel happy that you're better than them <laughs> in this instance, because that is a natural response. But also, you know, that um, that you just, you, you don't rely on somebody external to provide in yourself any sort of esteem or anything. So that, again, it, it's so that you can do it yourself. You don't have to worry about what the other people, just be content in yourself inside. And then it says, for every man shall bear his own burden. Meaning that each, even if you're asking to help somebody out, you ultimately are responsible for yourself. That's just what it's that simple. It's not making any major theological point. <laughs> it's saying, but the person might have made a fault. Try to restore them. But remember, they are ultimately responsible to themselves, and you're ultimately responsible to yourself. You're trying to help lift their load, but ultimately each person is responsible for themselves. That's just how it is. So... Again, that's not not doesn't need to get too much deeper. Paul's saying what is essentially a very matter of fact concept. So then it's in starting at six, um, which just for the sake of um, math, we're going to Matthew eighteen fifteen just for just just because because this is where Matthew chapter eighteen verse sixteen verse. 15. Uh, Matthew. Yeah, uh, Matthew 18, 18. 18th chapter, the 15th verse. And so, so and then 15th verse it says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou have gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Then it says, And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. So it's saying you give three chances with it. If... And this is specifically if it's a fault more personal. It's not so much about the, against the church. It's somebody might do something. And James talks a lot about this. James talks about somebody. Maybe. Back then there was an issue with people working for another person. And there were all kinds of different laws about it. And let's just say, as an example, you were supposed to work for somebody during the daylight. Once the sun goes down... They go, they stop working. They go, let's just say the person was trying to get it done for you. So they worked an hour or two in the, into the nighttime. And they say, well, because I continued working, I just want the next day's wage, even though I finished it a day early. Yeah. And other people go, no, 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 I'm only going to pay you for the time you're here, type of thing. And, and in doing so, you're not being fair because the person did the work. They just didn't do it on the day they said they were going to. So you were defrauding your brother of something that they did do. They did what they said they were going to do. So he's telling them that's a trespass. Remember, remember the one of the issues, and this is one of these weird things that other Bible versions do, is they'll put sin in there. A person can't sin against another person. 
You can only sin against God. So, and there's even in Greek, it's two different words. So, ratio is the word sin against God, meaning you're not just not doing the right thing against God. He's the only one you can sin against. For us, we trespass against each other, meaning we do something we shouldn't have done. So, therefore, we, we forgive the trespasses, the debts. We, we trespass against each other. So, if somebody is trespassing against you, does something, and sometimes it's unknowing. They just didn't realize. They, they did whatever. Bring it to them. If they hear you, then you've gained a friend. You're usually going to be better friends afterwards yeah. than before. If they don't, give them another chance. But this time... Bring up, you know, a person because you want to make sure somebody knows what happened so they can't accuse you of anything. But then further st still, it is important that if the person will not act, you need to at least mark the person so people know, and not by whispering behind their back, in an open way. So you say, well, this person has been defrauding people, or he's done this over and over again. I'm just letting, everybody needs to know that you have to watch out for that. That's not saying can't still be around. It's not saying, just everybody be careful. You know, if we had a person who was offering the money to mow lawns or something like that, and he kept going mowing his lawn, he didn't give you money, <laughs> you'd eventually go, okay, if Jake had offer, says he'll pay you to mow his lawn, don't. He's not going to. So that's, that's what it is. And then if he still doesn't straighten up, then you got to go. Discipline. You have to let him out because he's not He's not helping the community. He's hurting the community. So it really is just a, it's a good way to do it. And God is a God of second and third and fourth chances. He keeps giving you chances over and over again. So that is definitely a good thing. So starting in the sixth verse of chapter six of Galatians, we're going to continue on. It says, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teach us in all good things. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting. And let us not be weary. Page stuck together. Ah. <laughs> uh. Let us not be weary in well-doing, and for in due season we will reap if we faint not. As we have there, therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Again, this is one of these situations where Paul is talking about, in this life you may never get a reward for it. You may keep sowing and sowing and doing the right thing, and you never get the right, never thing, right thing never happens back. In the end, in eternity, it'll be worth it. No matter what it is now, it may be terrible now. In eternity, it's going to be worth it. For just a second in God's presence, it'll be worth it. But now, you might do the right thing because it's the right thing, but you may never, it may never come back to you. It's just the way it is. It's all right. I have a short snippet from Matthew Henry that he, it's one of my favorite commentaries, it's Matthew Henry. He says, when talking about that portion, uh, 6, 7, 6 through 10, 
Matthew Henry says, Many excuse themselves from the work of religion, though they may make a show and profess to it. They may impose upon others, yet they deceive themselves if they think to impose upon God. Who knows their hearts as well as actions, and who as we cannot be deceived, and who as we, as he, cannot be deceived, so he will not be mocked. Our present time is a seed time. In the other world, we will reap what we sow now, no matter what we sow. So, he's saying, God is not, you can't, that's that thing, the, the purpose of the God is not mocked, is that, is to say, speak a good, you can speak a good word, put up a good front, God knows your heart. And so, no matter what you're sowing, good or bad, God God will handle it. <laughs> you will handle, he will handle it. Don't worry about that. Yeah, most of the time, negatives usually do. <laughs> the negative side, you usually see a ramification of it. That's just the way it is. Um, and that's one of those things where, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> he talks about in due season, and he means after. But he says, you know, you will reap if we faint not. And again, that's just, you get, people burn out. They get sick of it. They get sick of doing the good things. They get sick of the work. Jeremiah is one of those guys that, you know, he has the lamentations. He has a lot of negative things happen. He was in a very hard time in his life. Um, and he was called very young to go into the ministry. And Jeremiah preached his entire life only the words of God. And he was told to say some hard things. Go in to people who are much older, much wiser, much more power, power to kill him, and say, you're doing the wrong thing. <laughs> Be, you know, you're doing it wrong. And the thing is, is, he was given insight by God. Like, he went in there and would tell them what they were doing. He would go in there and say, you guys are kneeling down to the east and praising the sun instead of God. And they'd go, how do you see that? How do you know that? And he's going, God said, and God's telling me to tell you you're going to be punished for it. So watch out. And so he, but in his time, he had, outside of a few disciples who followed him, Zero converts. He probably would be the least successful person to ever have a ministry because he preached and preached and preached and nobody changed. The only people who followed him were people who were looking for a master to teach them already. Yeah, he had a, like a guy, his name is Baruch and stuff like that, who wrote all of his stuff down. Um, outside of Baruch and a couple of the people, <laughs> there he had nobody. And nobody converted. We're talking his whole life, nobody converted. And there are preachers that have done that today. There were preachers that had gone over to China, gone over to Thailand, and they preached their entire life and died, never had a convert. But they, so, they, they worked the ground. They, they, they went to a ground that was hardened, and it's just like if you, every day you went outside with a, and watered the ground. Eventually, all that watering is going to get that ground soft enough that when somebody else behind you comes and throws some seeds in, they're going to take root. It may not have been you, but you work the ground. And that might be all you're called to do. I tend to be a person where I don't tend to get, be the one who harvests, who actually leads people. But I tend to be kind of in the middle area. I either work the ground or I do a lot of the, I've done a lot of the middle work of preparing the soil, planting seeds, 
maybe even help water them. But I rarely have actually in my ministry time been one of the ones that actually got to harvest. That just seems like that's what God has called me to do. He's called me to work the soil, to go to hard places and do hard things without necessarily getting the glory of being the person who led somebody, which I tell people all the time, nobody's ever gotten anyone saved ever. The Holy Spirit does that. So <laughs> I really am not missing out on anything because that's, God, that's God's job. I'm not going to take his job from him. So we're going to continue in 11. And it says, You see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. Now this is saying that Paul is saying he literally wrote this with his own hands. The reason why that is a big thing is because Paul had really bad eyesight after the whole the the um, vision where he was blinded and he did see again. He had watery eyes for the rest of his life and he had a hard time seeing. So when he wrote, he wrote in very big. He wrote in what's called unseals in Greek, which means all capital letters, so he could see it himself. And he wrote that, but the stuff he wrote with his own hand was usually short because it was difficult for him to read it back. So, but in this case, he wrote a pretty sizable letter. I mean, the Galatians, if you were to sit down and read it out loud, it would take you probably a half hour, 20 minutes to a half hour, just read out loud. It's a nice sizable letter. And he's saying, I wrote this to you by myself with my own hand because it's important. So in 11, starting in, it says, you see how large a letter I have written unto you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. As many and as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. See, he's saying... These people that want to put people into being circumcised, they're doing it so they can glory and say, see how many people I have following me? See how many people I've gotten to do what I tell them to do? He want the person who was leading them astray to have them circumcised was doing it so that he could say, I'm the one that did that. I caused them to follow the laws. I, it was a selfish reason. So Paul straight says it. <laughs> he straight up says it. But he's saying this person doesn't follow the laws themselves. They don't. Yeah. I know they don't. I have a feeling Paul knew who it was, but he wasn't saying names. He's just not naming names. He doesn't want to bring a problem. But he's saying, you know who you are, and I know who you are, and you're not following the laws. Now, and he's always talking, of course, about the Judaizers, not necessarily just the Torah law, but all that extra stuff. And Paul himself did follow till his death. The basic laws, the basic dietary laws, the basic the three feast days. So like he followed those. But he didn't do all the other stuff, the Judaizer stuff, the Washington things. But he's saying this guy doesn't do any of it. This guy doesn't do any of it. He's lying to you. He didn't do any of it. Yet he wants you to do it so he can have the glory of saying, look how large my following is. So Paul is making a straight accusation. There. 
And we do see how that at the end of that, he says in 16, he says, and as many as walk according to this rule, meaning the rule that circumcision means nothing, but to be a new creation, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. This is that part where if you go back to uh, Romans, and talk about Corinthians, where Paul was talking about, yeah, we'll flip there really fast, um, in Romans 9, where he talks about how that, um, he talks about it, this is in, in verse 6, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, meaning just because people in Israel are dying and going to hell, that doesn't mean the word of God isn't working. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel, meaning they're not everybody is godly Israel, who are fleshly Israel. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And so he has a promise. For this, the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And so he's talking about how that, you know, we, anybody who's through Christ is the real Israel. We're the people who believe in Christ, who believe in God. They're the real, they're God's Israel. They're the true Israel. And so that's where he says about upon Israel of God. And that is really important because, you know, it is what it is in the sense that he, you know, Israel is, God, Israel still has, it, the way I kind of, this is a thing that I've worked out that while I don't believe in replacement theology that God's done with the Jewish people, I don't believe in the dispensational idea that God just changes the rules every so many hundreds or thousands of years to how we get saved and stuff. I believe that what's going on is in the old days, they had a hard time understanding what God was doing. So they did the best they could. And God was okay with that. Today, we don't always understand what God's doing, but we do the best we can. And God's okay with that. People, there's people who will never understand the Bible on a deep level, and God's okay with that. They believe in Christ. They're saved. Good. So in this concept, we have that... My idea is, I think if you read the Old Testament... And when you think to yourself in a prophetic, when he's saying the future, when he's talking about Judah, he's talking about the Jewish people. When he's saying Israel, he's talking about the Christian church. And that's kind of how I view it. Basically, if you look at it this way, the, there was the kingdom. It was, it was divided. There was ten in the top and two in the bottom. And David united them and made one Israel, United Kingdom of Israel. Then, after Solomon, Jeroboam and Rehoboam split the kingdoms again. In that time, Israel became known as Samaria after that. But Israel was in the north, Judah in the bottom. The Jewish people in the bottom were still Jewish, but the people in the north were doing all kinds of things. Adding, Eventually, they got conquered and dispersed throughout the whole world. I mean, they called the diaspora. They were literally, which means disbursement. They, they 
sent them throughout the whole world because they, they were causing problems. You couldn't just conquer them. They kept causing rebelling. So they sent them everywhere. Well, in doing so, it's, uh, it basically that was God's plan. He sent them to the farthest corners of the earth. Then when Christ comes, he sent the disciples and the apostles out to the farthest reaches of the earth to reclaim Israel. So that's why Paul is using the term Israel, because this northern kingdom got sent everywhere. And so Paul is bringing them back in. We're, we, so we are Israel and that we are returning to God. He sent Israel into the world to mingle with the world. That way when he calls, Israel comes home. So, but Judah is the Jewish people. They're, they're a little different. He's, they're not being saved currently because they're not following the Messiah. Their Messiah was sent and they rejected him. But God's not done with them yet. He still loves them. He still loves Judah, even though they're being, they're, they're being apostate. But he will bring them back eventually, in the end. But he will bring them back under the umbrella of, of Christ. So that's kind of, it's, although they're not being saved still through just whatever they're doing, because you have to believe in Christ, they are still precious to him. And so that's how I view it. Israel is the church. Judah is the Jewish people. So it's a little confusing the fact that there's a country called Israel now. But, but still, that's how I do it to try and like separate these out. Because if you look at it, that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying not everybody who's Israel claims to be of, of Abraham. He's saying the people who believe are. So, and then, so starting at 17, it says, From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. In that 17th chapter, when he says that, he's talking about, or 17th verse, 16th chapter, 17th verse, he says, For henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. He is talking about like physical scars. He's trying to correct it. I mean, he was beaten. He was stoned to death. They drug him outside after they stoned him, drug him outside and left him. Stood back up and went back in and started preaching again. <laughs> I mean, and he actually had a vision of heaven in that, during that time. He, he feels he was truly dead because he, they stoned him to death, dragged him outside the city. He had a vision of heaven, but got sent back. And he, said, he even says that that vision of heaven was so glorious, I want to go back. I'm, I'm, he's, he was almost willing to commit suicide to go back. <laughs> but he said, I, I got to finish my race. I have to finish doing what God sent me here. God has me here for a reason. I have to finish strong. But he had a vision of heaven during that time. But he was stoned and came back and went right back in the same city and preached. And when they saw him, the people were like, holy cow, man, we just killed this guy. And he came back to try and convert us. The people converted. And so... You know, he's talking about his physical scars. He's talking about the fact he was shipwrecked and for night he had floated on a board out in the middle of the Mediterranean until he was eventually found land and was able to save himself. So he's talking about physical scars, marks. And even this, when he's writing this, if he's in chains, which he often was, they would put the chains in such a way they were so heavy they would actually leave imprints on you. So even after you were done, you'd still have imprints on your legs or on your hands. They did that, and when he was in Rome, and he was under, he was under house arrest in Rome. They would have a big ball, 
on the edge of it, and he'd have to carry the ball in one hand and walk wherever he was going. And the ball, and people knew that he was under some sort of condemned, being condemned or waiting for execution or something. But, so, but that ball would cause marks. The chains would cause marks. So he has physical scars that remind him of the pain that he's gone through for the cause of Christ. So he says, for that reason, I say, he's saying, for henceforth, let no man trouble me. Meaning, I'm dealing with you guys, and if you guys don't agree with it, I'm not going to lose sleep over you. <laughs> he's saying, I've, tr- I've tried to help you. I've tried to get you straight. This is my last try. If you don't start up, I'm not going to worry about it. It's up to God. I'm not going to trouble. I let no man trouble me. Let, and he's saying, and this is a, that's a, one of those dual things where he's saying, he's not going to be troubled by it, and at the same time he's saying, the person who's leading him astray, I'm not going to let that man trouble me. So, this is that dual thing where he's saying, henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. He's saying, I've gone through worse things than a few apostate Christians. I'm not concerned. <laughs> not concerned with it. And then he gives one of his, his a closing, which he gives two other times, um, but still, is a rare closing for Paul. He says, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Meaning, and he says that in Second Timothy also, when he's telling Timothy, I think I'm going to die soon, come here so I can give you some last instruction. He does the same thing. He says, I'm praying the Lord be with your spirit. Amen. So this means he's, he expects this to have really hit them hard. And they'll be troubled. But he's saying, I hope the Spirit works on you through it. So it's a very, he's a very much trying very hard to make sure that, he, that, that these people understand that you know, he, he loves them and he's hoping for their... He, so he's trying to be hard with them to save their soul. Sometimes you've got to be hard to save your soul. One thing I do think is interesting is that he does use the word mark, which in here about the marks on, of the body, on his body, you know, we talked about in previous things about like the mark of Cain, how that God put a mark, a spiritual mark. Interestingly, in Hebrew, it's et, et, or um, alpha, or um, aleph and tav, et, it's mark. It's actually a very common thing for God to use, even though we don't discuss it very much. And this is, we're going over a little bit, but I just want to hit this real fast just because it's almost unrelated, but I just like the concept for our closing of it. Um, in Ezekiel 9, back to Ezekiel 9, this is way back in the Old Testament, just a little after the Psalms and Proverbs. This is something a lot of Christians don't know, because the way our eschatology works, the way we think about the end times, we don't really think much about, there's so much talk about the pre-tribulation rapture and stuff, not a lot of, a lot of people really consider the fact that a lot of bad things will be going on even if there is a pre-tribulation rapture, a lot of bad things will happen before the church is taken. Because it's always been that way. Anybody who says, oh, God doesn't want us to have a bad life. Well, 11 out of 12 disciples were murdered. <laughs> Paul was decapitated. You know, his brother was thrown off a building. Jesus' own brother was thrown off a building, you know, at the top of the temple and beaten with clubs after he hit the ground. <laughs> I don't know about God wanting us all to be happy. But uh, Ezekiel 9, and in the fourth verse, it talks about how that, um, it says, uh, ( 
well, we'll talk about this here. And I'll start in four just because, because this is a talk. Ezekiel is seeing basically like like an Armageddon scenario. This is end times. This is the end. And it says, And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the forehead of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that are done in the midst thereof. And to the others he said in mine hearing, Go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eye spare, neither ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. And he said unto them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go ye forth. And they went forth, and they slew in the city. And it came to pass when they were slaying them, and I was left, that I fell upon my face and cried and said, O Lord God, wilt thou destroy all the residue of Israel in thy pouring out of thy fury upon Jerusalem? And then he said unto me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great, and the land is full of blood, and the city full of perverseness. For they say, The Lord hath forsaken the earth, and the Lord sees us not. And as for me also, mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity, but I will recompense their way upon their head. And behold, the man clothed with white linen, which had in him the inkhorn by his side, reported the matter, saying, I have done as thou hast commanded me. So he's saying in the end times, there's going to be people who are saved. At some point, when there's God is starting to bring stuff down, he's saying there were still Christians there. There were still saved people there. But he's protecting them with a mark. He's saying, take this. And in the whole first, he sees a white man clothed in white come out with an inkhorn. He tells them, mark their forehead with a cross. So that I know, with an X. So I know they're not to be touched. So if we jump forward to Revelation in chapter 7. So in the seventh verse, and it's right about starting two, and it says, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels of whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. That's the same... Ezekiel and John are having the same vision. It is my contention that there are only two visions in the entire Old Testament and New Testament, really. There is a vision of the destruction and God's wrath, and there is a vision of heaven. And they're the same two visions. What's happening is, because God is giving it to people, What's happen, what happens, and the reason why this is different, okay, Ezekiel, when he saw the vision of a throne room, he saw it with the images that his mind already knew. So he was familiar with the temple. 
he was familiar with, he had just gotten brought into Babylon. So he was familiar with some of the Babylon stuff, the Babylon lions and gates and things like that, and the chariots. So when he sees this vision, his brain, that's what we do. When we look at something, your brain looks at it and goes, okay, what am I looking at? It's a book. Okay, it's a book on what's on, what on, oh, there's a people on the book. Oh, and your brain does that real quick. That's the reason why you can look in somewhere and see something and then go, oh, what? And you look back and it wasn't there. Because your brain saw something and it thought it looked like another image. So it gave you that image for a second. But then when you got a chance to really look at it, you realize, oh, wait a minute, it's different. That's what's happening here in a sense is that God is giving this to them. But he, they can only explain using words they have, using terminology they have, using things they know. So he saw what he knew. So he saw a throne. It looked an awful lot like the throne the Babylonian Jews. So he was familiar with it. He saw cherubim. They looked identical to the ones that are in the temple. Why? Because he was familiar with that. So his brain saw something. Beamed from God's mind to his mind. And his brain interpreted it. And he's writing it down for us. John saw the same thing. The only difference is John's in a different time. John, see, he knows the Romans. He knows the Greeks. He's seen Ephesus. He's seen all these other things, so when he sees it, he sees it just a little different. It's the same vision, but he's seeing slightly different things. So one guy says he was clothed in white. The other guy says he was clothed in linen. What's the difference? Well, John is more talking about the fabric style he's familiar with, what was thought of as a liturgical robe, something the priests used, Whereas Ezekiel is more worried about the, the pureness, so it's white. So that's the difference. He, they're seeing the same thing. Daniel sees a vision of the throne. He sees the same throne as Ezekiel claims. He sees the same throne as Jesus, as, as John claims. When John in the fourth chapter starts describing, there's a throne sitting there. There's people around it. There's there's the sea looks like it looks like a sea of glass underneath it. He's describing identically. What Ezekiel, Daniel, what all these guys are talking about. And so here, when, when, when John is describing God pouring his wrath down, he's describing the same thing Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. He's, they're all describing the same thing. They're trying to do the best they can to describe what the end will be like using what they know. And so one of the things that's, that's interesting is that there is a sealing of those who are God's elect with a mark, a spiritual mark on their forehead. And therefore, think about this. What, the, what Antichrist does, Antichrist doesn't mean against Christ. People all think it's, it's anti. It means in the place of Christ. Antichrist is in the place of Christ in the Greek. So, oddly, oddly enough, the Pope is called the Vicar of Christ, which means the, in place of Christ. <laughs> He very well could be. He's, well, John says there are many antichrists. So people take on the spirit of antichrist all the time and do the wrong thing. But the antichrist, one of the things he does is he makes cheap imitations of what God does. So guess what? God puts a spiritual mark on your head to mark you as his. The antichrist has a mark also, the mark of the beast. So all that is is he's trying to take what God's doing and perverting it. And that's what happens all the time, is everything God does, God creates sex, Satan's going to pervert it. God creates life, God's, Satan's going to pervert it. 
everything God creates, trees and animals, Satan's going to pervert it. It's going to be a perversion of what God's doing. Everything is a cheap knockoff of what God's doing. So that's what we're seeing here. Is we're seeing God who is all-powerful, but Satan and the Antichrist is trying to mimic, trying to fool people. That's why Christ says there will be deception. And it'll be such a clever deception that if, that if it were possible to fool the elect, the, the saved people, it would fool them. But it's not possible because God's going to give us insight. Those of us who are saved, God will give us insight into what to avoid. But it's going to be such a clever deception that it's going to. However, like I said, that's what he says, the mark. It's just interesting to me how that, how that he makes the point of both that he has marks, which physical marks in his body, but he also bears the mark of Christ spiritually. So he pursue, he continues on. It's worth it in the end because he bears the spiritual mark of God. I'm going to read this last verse one more time, and then I'm going to do one more little verse from Matthew Henry to try and seal this off. 18 says, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And Matthew Henry says, Never have believers found more enjoyment of God than when suffering together for him. Grace is the best wish for ourselves and others. With this, the apostle begins and ends. He starts out with grace to you. He ends up with grace to you. All grace is from Christ. He purchased us and he bestows the grace on us liberally. We, what need we more to make us happy than to have the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with our spirits? Let us do that now, which we should do at our last breath. Then men are ready to renounce the world and to prefer, and to prefer the least portion of grace and faith before a kingdom. Meaning if you just the smallest amount of grace is worth more than a whole kingdom of treasures. It's all worth it in the end. Just the least amount. And we in America have a hard time with this because we're so blessed. We can't understand how hard people around the world have it. And how hard it's been throughout history to be a Christian. And even when in Christian nations in the past, to be someone who's, who's going against the system. When the system is wrong, it's tough. And we see that this with how they says, let's do it what well, should be the last breath. Do it now. Don't wait. Because when you get there, you're, you're going to have regret. But David Cassidy died recently. And it was really, I mean, it's touching but sad that his, his daughter put on, his, on uh, tweeted out what his last words were. And his last words to her before he fell asleep, before he passed away, a few hours later, was, so much time wasted. That was his last word. So he died with regret that he wasted so much of his life. And that's the point that Paul's getting at. Just keep striving, even if it doesn't feel like it's, okay, it's worth it now. It's going to be worth it in the end. Because at least when you close your eyes, you don't have to sit there and say, Man, I wasted so much time. So, may we all just continue. That like with this, whether we're studying, whether we're just doing the right thing, whether it's cut off in traffic, decide not to curse out the person. The thing that we would do in our last breath, let's do it now. Let's pray.